need to realize that there's no communication going to take place apart from the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who lives within each one of us and who enables us to both communicate and listen. There needs to be preparation in, in the heart of the, the speaker and the ability to communicate, but there also needs to be an attentiveness on the part of the listener. And we have this morning, I think, an exciting portion of Scripture to look at. I'm thrilled about it, but times often happen that when I get thrilled about something, sometimes it leaves other people a little buried. And I want to just uh, ask you to do what you can to stay with me. If you get lost, I'm going to try and bring things together at the conclusion, and hopefully uh, things will make a lot of sense. One thing that has made the death of Princess Diana so tragic and difficult for the world to accept is that she was so young. Youth is almost synonymous with life. And the death of a, of a young person is particularly troubling. It just doesn't seem to be right. It just doesn't seem to be fair. What ultimately seems fair and right if you were to ask most people, is if all of us, while we were young, could go to a fountain of youth somewhere and consume some kind of elixir or vitamin or food, sort of like fluoride in the water, that would keep us forever young, that would heal us of any disease that we might contract. And that if we had an accident, no matter how serious, that somehow we could be injected with this substance and we would rejuvenate. Wouldn't that be great? Well, the answer to that is yes and no. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. First book of the Bible, and we're, we've been giving some close attention to this one chapter in our review of chapters 1 to 11. Now, we'll be jumping from this chapter on to chapter 9 in uh, about three weeks, and hopefully uh, that, will, that will pick up and thread through the rest of, of these chapters. Oftentimes in my life, when I hear something read or see, hear somebody say something, I begin to form a picture in my mind only to find out later that it was an insufficient or inaccurate representation of what was said. And I think this is certainly the case with what we're about to read. And so I invite you to read with me, but to read with, without making a judgment at this point. Verse 22 of chapter 3. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now if you were to isolate this from the rest of the chapter, these words might seem merciless, full of pain, sorrow, and judgment. In fact, there are many classic paintings that have been painted of the scene of Adam and Eve being expelled from the garden 
driven, if you will, out of the garden in judgment. One man describes, I think interestingly, a, a famous fresco in Florence, Italy, that's called Expulsion from Paradise. And he describes it this way, since we don't have the painting in front of us, let me read what he says. In it, Adam and Eve are being driven away by an angel who hovers overhead, sword in hand. The human pair are engulfed in anguish. Adam's head is bowed low, hands covering his face. Eve's head is thrown back and her mouth open in a cry of deep personal pain. As Adam and Eve walk away from the Garden of Eden, their withering shame is painfully evident in the very motion of their bodies. Now the problem with such painting is, is that although they portray well the obvious sorrow and pain, they miss the essence of what God is doing here. God did not send an angel to wield a sword. That's number one. As we saw last week, the context in which God, the context of these verses is one in which God is seeking to salvage broken lives. Two very broken lives. And what we see in this passage, beginning in verse 21, is God working to recover to pitifully and hopefully doomed individuals. And ultimately, a pitifully and hopefully, hopelessly doomed race of which we are a part. What God is working out in these verses is what the Bible elsewhere calls salvation. The issue here at hand is not judgment. The issue is salvation. That's a crucial point in setting these verses in context, one that's so often made in a mistake. Let's take a look at the salvation. God's salvation actually begins in verses 20 and 21. And we looked at this carefully last week, but let me just review with you briefly what we concluded last week. Verse 20 we read, And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Now, we saw last week that he called her Eve because, meaning life or life giver, the name Eve means life or life giver, he called her that because he believed the promise of God that through her, human life would continue, and ultimately through her, there would come forth a descendant who would deliver the entire human race. That was brought out in Genesis 3, 14 and 15. Now, in response to Adam's faith, which is painfully evident in verse 20, God moves to salvage these two broken lives that are covered in shame. Remember, they tried to cover themselves with the fig leaves. They were very ashamed of what they'd done. They had a low self-esteem, and rightfully so. But God now was moving to salvage them. And we read about how he salvages them to begin with in verse 21. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics, or you might translate garments of skin, and clothed them. Now God was doing much more here than simply providing a more durable covering for their shame, for their naked bodies. Because they knew there was 
something wrong with them, beginning with the physical, but going all the way into their inner being. And we looked at that last week. But God was doing more than just covering that, that shame, that low sense of a self-esteem. By taking two innocent animals and killing them to provide the covering, God was teaching Adam and Eve the central truth of the Old Testament. If you will, the central truth of the whole Bible. That sin is what needs to be covered and ultimately removed. And that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or removal of sin. That's a central teaching of the Bible, and that is a quotation from the Bible that is made in numerous places. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Sin could not be covered by a bunch of leaves that they had grabbed to cover their persons that would grow back again next year. Sin could only be covered by pain, blood, and death. In this instance, by the pain, the blood, and the death of an innocent animal who would die in their place. And remember, animals were precious to Adam and Eve and precious to God. God's salvation began with the salvaging of these two very broken human lives by covering their sin and their shame. That's where it began. He dealt with their sin and their shame. But God in His mercy and His love wanted to do more than just cover their sin and their shame. He wanted to do more than simply enable them to stand before Him using scriptural terminology, righteous. He wanted to do more than to enable them to stand before Him justified, without guilt, not condemned. He wanted to salvage their lives. God wanted to recover those lives for Himself. He didn't want them just to be able to stand before Him. He wanted to recover their human lives. He wanted to save them in the fullest sense of the word save. He wanted to save them from wasting their lives. And so God's salvation continues into the present with respect to their present. And that takes us to verse 22 to 24. Let's read it again. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden to the, till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now I know what you're probably thinking or saying to yourself, what, what does this mean? And how in the world could this have anything to do with God's love and mercy? This sounds completely contrary to God's love and mercy. Look with me more closely at these words and let's see if we can see where God's love and mercy is. Verse 22, the first part of the verse, the first sentence. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. Two things we need to look at. First of all, what does he mean by one of us? And secondly, what does he mean by to know good and evil? Let's take a look at the first concept. 
The word us here is a plural pronoun. And it's parallel to the us over in chapter 126 when God said, let us make man in our image. Another plural pronoun. Now why would God use a plural pronoun in referring to himself? Why wouldn't he just say, and the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like me to no good or evil. What was God doing here? If you were to take into account uh, the rest of Scripture, he is choosing a plural form of a pronoun, I believe, to accentuate, to draw attention to the fact that there were persons within the Godhead. Specifically, from the rest of Scripture, we know that there is one God, or that God exists in a oneness, but within the unity of the Godhead, there are three co-equal and eternal persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the point is, is that man has now become like the persons of the Godhead. This is bringing this down on a personal level is what God is doing. Just as the persons of the Godhead have come and know good and evil, so now man has come to know good and evil. To know clearly the difference between good and evil. Now, throughout the Bible, and that's the next phrase we want to look at, to know good and evil, throughout the Bible, we are taught that evil is something that God the Father hates. We're taught that evil is something that caused God the Son to be slain from the foundation of the world. When God laid down the foundation of the world, His Son was slain from that time. God knew all this was going to take place. And furthermore, we read in Scripture that evil is something that grieves the Holy Spirit. God clearly knows the difference between good and evil. Likewise, man now knows the difference between good and evil. Before he ate of the forbidden fruit, he knew only good. He knew only peace. He knew only the joy of creation. The goodness of a creation that God said was very good. He knew only the joy of intimacy with God. But now after he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God had commanded him not to eat, now after he had broken trust with God, he knew not only the good that he had, in large part now lost, he knew now the shame, the disgrace, the brokenness, the hopelessness, the fear through his sin of disobedience. He came to know evil. What's the difference? What's the difference between God's knowledge of good and evil and man's knowledge of good and evil? That's a crucial question. Because God knew good and evil from the side of good. God knew good and evil from the side of his own person, which was good. And everything that God was not was evil. When Satan rebelled, in eternity past, long before this occurred. He rebelled against the character and the will of God. That was evil. Everything that God was not in His character and everything that God did not will is evil. God knows evil from the side of good. But man, on the other hand, had come into a knowledge of good and evil from the side of evil. From evil, he experienced not only in his world, but in his own person. In other words, evil was beginning to 
impact his person, his character, his will, his desires. The result is, is that man knows what is good, but he chooses to do what is wrong. Man knows what is good, but he does in his life and in his world what is evil. Now the Bible, again, I'm taking from other portions of Scripture and reading into this and elaborating on what is being taught here. The Bible explains elsewhere that this is because of sin. Sin working in the person of Adam and in the person of his descendants is at work in him as a person and in his fleshly body and it is dominating and controlling him so much so that if he is left to himself unchanged and without any restraints whatsoever, there is no limit to the depths of sin and evil he will go. You say, what are you talking about here? I'm not following this. Think about it. For the next three chapters, chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6, what do we see? We see man going deeper and deeper and deeper into sin and evil. In fact, by chapter 6, verse 5, it gets so bad that God says this, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of his heart and thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now keep in mind, how long did people live in those days? A thousand years, 900 years, 800 years, 700 years. That's a long time. That's a real opportunity to build a kingdom of evil, if you will. Can you imagine somebody like a Stalin or a Hitler living a thousand years? Now keep in mind... The God in His love and mercy wants to save man from the power of sin and evil in his life. He wants to save man from this dominating force in his life. And there's only one thing that can break the power of sin and evil in a person's life. Do you know what it is? Only one thing can break the power of sin and evil in our life and in our experience. The Bible says just one thing. Death death. That's the whole teaching of Romans 6. Of course, there it's the believers now seen united to the death of Christ, which gives us liberty from sin and evil. But going back, that teaching is founded on the original principle that without death, man would continue endlessly building even greater kingdoms of evil, so to speak, stooping more deeply into sin and evil. When a man dies, he can no longer overpower and control. Evil can no longer, and sin can no longer overpower and control his life, leading to greater evil, greater wrong, greater immorality. Death is a check upon the power and influence of sin and the evil that resorts. I think that's why in Genesis 6, God said he was going to limit man's years to 120. Because even with 800 to 1,000 years, it got way out of hand so that every intent of his heart was evil continually. If we did not die, there would be no limit to the evil men could do. I recall the 
one kind of movie that I can't stand are horror movies. I just don't like, like any horror movie, either television or anything. But you know one thing about a horror movie is it seems like the monster or the bad guy never gets killed. He gets knocked down and you think he's dead and he gets up and goes again. And he just gets knocked down and he goes again and he gets knocked down and he goes again and he keeps coming back to life. And he does even greater horrors and greater wrongs. It's a beautiful picture of exactly what we're seeing here. In this sense, death was a merciful sentence upon man. And now out of his continuing mercy and desire to save man, God must move prevent, to prevent access to the one thing that could make that sentence null and void. Remember, God said that the day you eat of the fruit, you shall die. Obviously, first of all, he died in the sense of his relationship with God was severed. And we read in verse 21 how that relationship is restored. And we're going to read more about that relationship being restored in just a moment. But the second thing is, is that man began the process of death and decay at that moment. So that eventually, in Adam's case, 900 and some years old, he would die. Now, had he been able to eat of the tree of life, the Bible indicates he would live on forever in the state in which he was in, which was a state in which sin and evil dominated his life. God says that cannot be. That would be a judgment and a sentence worse than death itself. And so God moves to prevent him from being able to eat of the tree of life. Verse 22b. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man. He placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now there's a lot of confusion at this point surrounding this subject, the tree of life. What kind of, of life are we talking about? What kind of tree? And once we think about what kind of tree, what kind of life would this tree impart to those who ate of it? What kind of, of life was being blocked by preventing the man from being able to eat of it? Was it eternal life that the tree gave? Was it endless human life? Was it abundant life? Was it a healthy life? Was it a young life? What kind of life is the tree able to impart? What's it talking about here? The best way to answer this question is to ask the question, why? Why was there a tree of life to begin with? Why was there a tree of life in the first place? That's always my favorite Bible question. And the question I get perturbed about when we study Scripture and Bible studies and things, we don't ask the why question. We're always asking what? Or how? I want to know why. Why is there a tree of life? So let's briefly pick up those places in the Scripture where the tree of life is mentioned. And let's see if by studying those portions of Scripture, we can come to an understanding of why the tree of life existed and just what it was that God was preventing here. The first place that we read about the tree of life is Genesis chapter 2-9. If you'll turn back one chapter... We'll read about the first place that we read about the tree of life. And out of the ground, 
the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Every tree. The tree of life was also in the midst, notice that, in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was also in the midst of the garden. Now that's important. Why would he say it was in the midst of the garden? When something's in the midst of it, when it's in the center, what's that tell you? It's important. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil were central to God's purpose with man. And we've talked about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That was central to God's purpose with man from the standpoint that God was building a relationship of trust. Man was going to be his image on this earth, his representative. But in order to accurately represent God and to truthfully represent him, there needed to be truthfulness. There needed to be a faithfulness, a trust that was built up between God and man. And that could only happen as man obeyed God completely. So it was not so much in the fruit that was eaten as in the act of disobedience that led to the fall. But there alongside of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there was another tree, the tree of life. It was central to God's purpose. What was that purpose? Turn over, if you will, to Genesis uh, 2.16. And although this doesn't mention uh, the tree of life, it does say something that I think is important. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every, every, every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Friends, did Adam eat of the tree of life? I think that verse clearly says he did. Because God told him that he could eat of every tree in the garden. Now, don't you think that if there's a tree in the middle of the garden, and God said you could eat of it, don't you think you would have tried it and eaten from it? Do you think Satan would have come to Adam and Eve and approached them before they had eaten of all the trees? Why tell them to eat of this last tree if they'd already, if they hadn't sampled all the trees yet? If they hadn't sampled at least the tree of life? It seems reasonable from the testimony of Scripture to me that Adam and Eve were eating of the tree of life. In fact, I believe that the tree of life was central to God's purpose. Now, what was the purpose of the Garden of Eden to begin with? This was Adam's home, but it was a home also for God to come and what? Walk with Adam and Eve, to fellowship with them, to grow intimate with them. Remember, Adam was going to be God's representative on the whole earth. His descendants would come forth and represent God everywhere. And so God begins the process in which there would be a relationship of trust. And out of that relationship of trust, there would be continuing fellowship, closeness between God and man. That's what the Garden of Eden was all about. Read in chapter 2, that, or chapter 3, after they took of the forbidden fruit, that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. I believe this is none other than a theophany, that is an appearance of God. In my opinion, the, the Lord Jesus Christ himself appearing in his pre, pre-fleshly form, 
but yet appearing with a body, walking and talking with Adam and Eve day by day, fellowshipping together, talking. And what happens when you fellowship? What's one thing that Christians need to have a good time when we fellowship? Food, right. You know, I hear Christians say this all the time. They'll say, you know, why do we always have to have food? No food, no fellowship. That's a scriptural principle. And I kid you not. My wife, she, uh, she entertains so willingly and so faithfully, and she'll say to me occasionally, she says, can't we just get together with people without eating? Theologically, no. You see, in the scripture, food was central to a relationship. When you had a person, in, if you were a part of the tribal community that Abraham would be a part of, if he wanted to build a relationship with somebody, they broke bread together. And that solidified the relationship. Fellowship revolved around food. And that's a pattern that started with God, not with man. Because I believe as Adam and Eve were in the garden... Central to the fellowship with God was the freedom to eat of all these trees, but particularly the tree of life. And we're going to see why in just a moment. Now let's move on at this point to the next places in which we find this tree of life mentioned. After Genesis 3, we do not find the tree of life again referred to until we get to the book of Proverbs. And there it's only referred to in sort of veiled references. I'm going to read the four references in Proverbs where it occurs, but they're very important because I think they tell us something. In Proverbs 3.18 we read, Wisdom is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all those who hold her fast. Proverbs 11. The fruit of righteousness is a tree of life. The righteous will be rewarded on earth. Proverbs 13.12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when desire comes, it is a tree of life. Proverbs 15.4 A wholesome tongue is a tree of life. Now in these four passages, we see that there are four things that are likened to a tree of life. Wisdom, the fruit of righteousness, the satisfying of our desires, and a wholesome tongue. All of these are likened to a tree of life. Why are they likened to a tree of life? Because all of those things enrich and benefit our life in some way. Wisdom leads to happiness. The fruit of righteousness leads to reward. The satisfying of our desires leads to joy. A wholesome tongue, I trust, would lead to peace. All of those things are leading to things that enrich and bless and benefit our life in some way. Now from this we can begin to get a bigger picture here of just what this tree of life was all about. It wasn't just about life. It was about an abundant or a superlative experience of life in the context of fellowship with God. This becomes 
even more clear when we look at the next reference to the tree of life. Let me just, before we move on to that, think about when you're sitting around with friends and you're fellowshipping, you're talking, you're sharing your experiences, your life experiences, you're sharing something together, but you're eating. And we all kid about eating, but we love it, don't we? It's so good. And I should speak from experience. It is so good. And that's what, is, what God is saying here, is that the tree of life was adding something to the experience so wonderful. Fellowship with God was enhanced by this tree of life. Revelation 2.7. Let's take a look at that. You may want to turn over to that, because you may not believe all this. But keep your finger there at Genesis 3 so we can flip back. Although, it's nice to be able to go from Genesis to Revelation. We shouldn't get lost with those two books. One is at the first, and one is the last book of the Bible. Revelation 2.7. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to his churches. And he has spoken to the first church of Ephesus, and he's, he's concerned that they have grown sort of apathetic and uh, unenthused. And they have allowed certain false doctrine to creep into the church, which reflects a loss of love and concern for him and for his will. And so this is what he concludes, verse 7, to the church at Ephesus. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give... To, I, I should have said this is Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He who overcomes his apathy and indifference, I will give to eat of the tree of life. Now, Jesus is not saying he will give this person eternal life. They already had eternal life. These were Christians. They were already born again. They were already going to heaven. No question, no doubts. Security is there. But Jesus says, I want to go beyond that. And I'm saying to you who have eternal life, who are going to heaven, who will one day be with me in paradise, I will give you the reward of being able to eat, with the, eat from the tree of God which is in the midst of the paradise of God, leading to a superlative experience of life in the context of fellowship with God. What Jesus offered was a reward to someone who would overcome, who would put their life on the line and overcome their apathy and indifference and do something in a church that was dead or dying. The reward was to eat of the tree of life. He was offering them something beyond living in heaven. He was offering them something beyond walking on streets of gold. He was offering them an extraordinary, superlative experience of heavenly life. Now turn over, if you will, if we add this then to the last chapter. Revelation 22, appropriately the last chapter of the Bible. We read about the tree of life in this first part of the Bible. And we're going to read about it in the last part of the Bible. It's very interesting. Chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, I picture this heavenly city called the New Jerusalem as a pyramid. And at the very apex, you have the, the throne of God, if you will. And coming down through the city is a, is a river of water 
clearest crystal proceeding from the throne of God, and in the middle of its street, and on either side of the river, was the tree of life which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. We have some serious considerations here to take on. Verse 3 says, And there shall be no more curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. First, I think, referring to the idea of this inability to relate to God in intimacy, closeness, being expelled from the garden. According to these verses, the tree of life yielded 12 kinds of fruits, one for every month. It was the fruit which, when eaten, yielded a superlative experience of heavenly life in the context of fellowship with God, in which his servants would be fellowshipping with him, which, as we have seen, was the whole purpose of the tree of life. But notice one other thing that we may overlook as we think about this study of the tree of life. It had leaves. And the leaves were for the healing of the nations, or the peoples, if you will. We're here as ethnos for a nation. Now, we're going to look at this more in depth next week. And as, we see, as we'll see next week, eating the leaves of the tree of life would heal whatever was wrong with the human body. If it was injured, it would be healed. If it was sick, it would be healed. If it was growing old and dying, it would be healed. And you're saying, I thought we have new bodies. You'll have to come back next week, and you're going to learn a lot about that subject next week. We won't have time today. But to eat of the tree of life will be both a privilege and reward for some, the serpents, but it will be a necessity for others who will have to eat of its leaves in order to be healed in God's heavenly kingdom. And so we read in the last reference to the tree of life, which is in verse 12 through 16, the Lord Jesus is speaking, and he says, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. He's saying this to his servants. To give to everyone according to his work, well done, good and faithful servant. This will be your reward. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed, oh, how happy and fortunate are those who do his commandments. Why? That they may have a right to the tree of life and may enter into the gates of the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. The first command, of course, is to believe in Jesus Christ. But then to keep his commandments as his servants is to advance the kingdom on earth, and those who advance his kingdom, who keep his commandments, will have a right to the tree of life. Now let me just summarize the, the point. What was the purpose of the tree of life? Twofold. First, to provide fruit leading to a superlative experience of heavenly life 
in the context of fellowship with God for his servants. Second, to provide leaves for the healing of the human body. And I'll explain it next week. You're saying, how are there human bodies in heaven? I'll explain it next week. Come back. Now, the tree of life in the Garden of Eden was patterned after this tree of life in heaven. The tree of life in heaven, I believe, already exists. And I believe the tree in the Garden of Eden was patterned after that. Adam and Eve had eaten of the fruit of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And as a result, they had enjoyed a superlative experience of life, human life in this case, in the context of fellowship with God, just like we enjoy a superlative experience when we eat a great Thanksgiving meal in the context of fellowship with our friends. But they had never been injured. They had not grown old. Their bodies were not in the process of decay. And they had never known disease. But now, if you come back to Genesis 3 with me, now they were in a position where their bodies were beginning to grow old. They were in a position in which they would know disease and eventually death. Unless they put forth their hand and eat not only of the fruit, but of the leaves of the tree of life. And therefore their bodies be healed and the process is leading to death be stopped, and they having then to live indefinitely under the power and dominion of sin, leading to evil and more evil, we must drive them out of the garden. And that's what God does in chapter 23, or chapter 3, verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent, the word there might be better, drove him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken Man could not eat of this tree. He would die. But so also he would one day in death be released from the power of sin when he did die. Instead of eating the tree of life and living forever in bondage of sin, dominion of sin, the Lord drove him out of the garden to sustain his life from the ground, return to the ground from which he was taken. But the man said, I want nothing to do with this. I want no part of this. This is where I've known my home and my security. My, my whole life is here in this garden. And so we read in verse 24, So he drove out the man. The word drove out there would be better translated. Cast him out. He had to forcibly take and throw him out of the garden. Man and his wife. And he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden. And a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Placed the entrance, the east of the garden would be the entrance of the garden. He placed two things, cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way. Let's take a look at the flaming sword. Now what prevented man from coming into the garden and eating the tree of life once he was expelled? Why didn't he come back? Not because there was an angel wielding a sword, as the fresco suggests in Florence, Italy, but a sword, a symbol of death and judgment was what kept man from coming and taking hold of that tree or entering that garden. But this was no ordinary sword, but one which was ablaze and constantly turned every which way, we are told. 
like the bush that burned before Moses, like the pillar of fire that led the people of Israel out of Egypt, like the Shekinah glory of God that filled the temple, the Holy of Holies within the temple. The blazing fire around the sword was a symbol of God's holy and righteous presence. So here was a holy and righteous God surrounding an instrument of death and judgment. And what do you think God was saying in that symbol? Do not approach. Keep your distance. A God of justice is angry and ready to judge sin and sinners. You cannot enter in here, Adam and Eve. You cannot come close to Him. At the entrance of the garden. If I picture it this way, you have the tree of life, say, here. I'm just using figures here. And then next you have the sword with the Shekinah glory of God and this bright effulgence of God's person. And then at the entrance of the garden, you have cherubim. What in the world are cherubim? Notice that God also placed cherubim together with the flaming sword. And cherubim were a specific order of angels that are referred to 65 times in the Bible. Perhaps one of the most extensive references is found in Ezekiel chapter 10 and 11, in which the Shekinah glory of God, that's this bright effulgence of God, in which God represents himself on this earth as a bright, shining light that is all-consuming, a symbol of his presence. And we read in, Gen in Ezekiel chapter 10 how that presence of God, that bright Shekinah glory of God, left the temple. Let me read it to you, verses 1 to 5 of Ezekiel 10. Ezekiel writes, and he says, And I looked, and there in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim, there appeared something like a sapphire stone having the appearance of the likeness of a throne. And he spoke to the man clothed with linen and said, Go in among the wheels under the cherub, fill your hands with coals of fire from among the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he went in as I watched. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in and the cloud filled the inner court, then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple and the house was filled with the cloud and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory and the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard even in the outer court like the voice of Almighty God when He speaks. And we don't have time to explore this passage in death, but one thing is clear. The cherubim were an order of angels that were associated with the presence of God specifically on the earth, on this earth, with the Shekinah glory of God, which is a symbol of God's presence, you have the cherubim associated with that Shekinah glory. But why were the cherubim placed, going back to Genesis 3, why were they placed here by the entrance of the Garden of Eden in front of the flaming sword? Obviously because the Shekinah glory of God was present here in the flaming sword. You have the flaming sword, you have the cherubim. But there's more to it than that. This is real critical. Hang with me. The greatest number of references in the Old Testament to cherubim are not to the real cherubim that you read about in Genesis 3 that we're talking about or that you read about in Exodus or Ezekiel chapter 10 and 11. The majority of references to cherubim are to carve representations of cherubim 
which hovered over the mercy seat in the Ark of, of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies of the Jewish Temple. This becomes, you're probably thinking, what in the world is he talking about? Listen to this. This is from Exodus 25, 10 to 20, in which God is commanding Moses to build the temple, and this is a particular part of the furniture that he was to build. And they shall make an ark. An ark is a chest. Maybe that would be a better word here. And they shall make a chest of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it and shall make on it a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in it, in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles onto the rings in the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I gave you. That's the Ten Commandments. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Here you have a chest. On top of the chest you have a mercy seat. The chest about three feet, four feet long, foot and a half high, foot and a half deep. Sort of like a chest at the end of a bed. And on top you have a mercy seat or a place that's pure gold where an offering was going to be made. And overshadowing that, you would have these two cherubim that would be carved and overlaid with gold that would be over, overlaying or looking over with their wings spread over the mercy seat, which was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at the end, at one end, and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of the one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings as you make them, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. Where did God get this pattern from? Where did the pattern come from? Obviously, God was patterning the making of the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, and the cherubim after something. What? My opinion is that he is making it after what actually existed in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.24. Going back to Genesis 3.24, so he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the entrance of the garden, east of the garden, entrance of the Garden of Eden. A flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the Tree of Life. Just like in the Holy of Holies, you have the mercy seat, the cherubim, and behind that, the bright effulgence of God's glory. I believe you have the same thing at the entrance of the Garden of Eden. God was patterning. The instructions to Moses were a pattern that had already been established in the Garden of Eden. The cherubim were stationed in the Garden of Eden. Most likely, they were overseeing the appointed place of sacrifice. The first mercy seat or altar between this blazing sword symbol of God's presence and the cherubim. It probably was here that God in his blazing presence continued at intervals to meet with Adam and Eve and their descendants. How would they relate with God? They would come to the entrance of the garden and there they would come with blood of an animal and they would sacrifice 
And then they would meet with God and talk with God. You say, Arch, you're reading too much into this, am I? Take a look at chapter 4. I won't go into the details, but you remember the story of Abel, Cain, and Abel? You remember the offering that was accepted and the one that wasn't? Where do you think they offered that offering? In my opinion, they offered it at the entrance to the door, at the entrance to the Garden of Eden, where you have two cherubim overlooking a mercy seat. They brought the blood. Abel brought the blood of the sacrifice of the lamb that he had slain. Cain instead brought grain. Grain was unacceptable. It made it difficult or made it impossible for him to have a relationship with God. That's what I think this portion of Scripture is teaching. But what's so merciful about all this? It sounds like great theology, great teaching, but what's so merciful about it if man finally returns to the dust of the ground from which he was taken? Where's the salvation of God? Where's the salvaging of his broken life, so to speak, his recovering of life for himself? Notice the last words. To guard the way to the tree of life. The last words of chapter 3, to guard the way of the tree of life. Now I have a question. Why didn't God just cut down the tree? Why didn't he just uproot the tree? Take it away? Why did he leave it there? They were never going to eat of that tree again. Why didn't God just cut it down or destroy it some way? Why keep it? Why guard the way to it? Why not just seal it off physically? Put it in a concrete bunker. But God kept the tree of life in place. And he guarded the way to the tree of life. I believe they could see it. When they approached the Garden of Eden, I have a feeling that they could see the tree of life towering in the distance. They could see also the flaming sword with the effulgence of God's glory, but they also stood there in front of two cherubim that overshadowed a mercy seat that said, proceed no further. And if you want to relate to this eternal God who is ready to judge you for your sin, you need to come with blood. But that tree stood there as a reminder, as a symbol of hope. A symbol that God's salvation was not completed. Death was not the end. When Adam and Eve died, that's not the end of their story. One day, they will have the privilege of eating of that tree again. One day, the human race will be healed by that tree again. We'll look at that next week. That tree was a symbol of hope that man would eat of the fruit of the tree and enjoy a superlative experience of life one day after death. Friends, what are these verses all about? Are they about judgment? Not really. Ultimately, they're about God's salvation. Not just the salvaging of these two human lives of the first man and the first woman. They're ultimately about the salvation of all mankind, of the whole human race. These verses... If you will, let me put them into the context of a familiar outline. These verses are about being saved. First of all, about being saved from the penalty of sin. From the shame and the guilt of sin. Call it poor self-esteem. But also from gaining a standing on the positive side of having a righteous standing before God. Sometimes this is called justification. These verses are about being saved from the power of sin of being saved from sin's dominion over our lives, its controlling effects on our life, that can only be, we can only be delivered by death. 
Ultimately, we learn that that was through the death of Christ, our substitute. We find identity and find the power to be victorious over sin. Sometimes that's called sanctification. And that's being saved from the power of sin. Thirdly, these verses are about being saved from the presence of sin. About the hope of a new life where there is no more sin, no more evil, no more sorrow, no more death, no more pain. About an eternal life and an eternal experience of life. And for some, superlative experience of life. This is called glorification. This is God's salvation. This is God's complete salvation for all of us. How do we enter into it? By faith. Remember how Adam entered into it? Verse 20. He called his wife's name Eve. You say, what's so significant? He called his wife's name Eve, life or life giver, because he believed the promise of God. Throughout the Old Testament, they didn't know about Jesus Christ and about the cross and about all these things that were prefigured in all of their offerings or sacrifices. All of this pointed to Jesus Christ. It pointed to his death on the cross. It pointed to his death on our behalf, our substitute. That through faith in him, our sin might not just be covered but removed forever. They didn't know about that, but they believed God. They believed the Lord Jehovah. They believed his commandments. They believed his words, and they acted upon them in faith. And for that reason, they were saved. And friends, today, we're invited to believe and trust the words of Jesus who said this, truly, truly, I say to you, if you believe in me, you have eternal life. Have you believed in Jesus Christ? That's how we enter into God's salvation today. By believing, trusting in Jesus Christ. I listened yesterday to the funeral, and we, we heard so little that was even religious. But what we heard that was religious, the name of Jesus was only mentioned a couple times in a formality. Friends, there's no salvation. There's no hope apart from Jesus Christ. It's through faith in Him that we have life for Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank You for Your goodness to us. We pray that You would, in this day particularly, grant us a superlative experience of life if we fellowship with You through our Lord Jesus Christ. But Lord, we long for that day when we one day shall be able to eat that tree which is in the midst of the paradise of God. I know the experiences that you have prepared for us that far exceed anything we could even dream of in this world. Oh, Father, give us a heart to serve you in these days. In Jesus' name we pray.